So let's pray, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this morning. Lord, we need to hear your voice. We need to hear your voice, especially as it relates to the apocalypse, the return, the day of the Lord, uh, the kingdom of heaven inaugurated in a visible way. Lord, these are complex issues, and yet we come across them in this ending of Luke chapter 17. So we need the guidance of your spirit. Lord, uh, most of all, we need humility. Uh, there's no way to begin to discuss things that haven't yet happened without a high degree of humility. There is division in the body of Christ as it relates to these events and their views of these events. And so, Lord, it's, uh, it's complex. Uh, some feel they have it all nailed. Others feel uh, that they don't understand anything, especially as it deals with the book of Revelation. Lord, help us find a reasonable balance and uh, to, to honor all those followers of Jesus who may differ in their views uh, as we proceed this morning in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, first of all, we're gonna, we're gonna discuss the coming of the kingdom of God because that's where we are in Luke 17. And we're also gonna discuss a few issues that arise. The Pharisees are beginning to ask, when is the kingdom going to come? And, and then the disciples are going, Jesus says these somewhat enigmatic makes these enigmatic statements and they begin to go, well, where are they gonna be taken and who's gonna be taken? And it's, it's a little complex. There is no way I think that I'm probably gonna satisfy your, if you hold to a particular view of how all this comes down. But what I would like to do is give you a little bit of information about the varying views, not only of what we would call the millennial views, but also a little bit about just the general tenor in which you view, example, the book of Revelation, Zechariah, Daniel, the prophets in the Old Testament, some of the statements Jesus makes, some of the other teachings. All these kind of come together with something we call eschatology, the, uh, the eschaton, what happens in the future, the study of these future events. Well, why is that important? Well, I can tell you right now, there is no way I would be standing here before you today if I did not believe that Jesus was coming back. I've told you many times I, I have no need, in my, at least in my own mind, of a guru that will help me kind of navigate the vicissitudes of life. I mean, they're, they're everywhere, the self-help books, everywhere you can go, you can get this information, but we're, what we're talking about is Jesus, number one, predicated on one thing, was Jesus raised from the dead? And if he was, is he coming back? And if so, what did he say about that? And then how has the church historically understood some of these very complex things? Let me say this right, allow me to say this right off the bat. It's a little opaque. Some, many of you may feel like, no, I've got this down. I read a book a number of years ago and it just laid all these verses out. Now I understand it. I, I will tell you right now that every view that we will look at this morning has some powerful strengths and some weaknesses. Every view, I've studied this for multiple decades and uh, I used to teach just pretty adamantly, well, this is kind of the way it is because you know we believe the Bible. Trust me, please understand. Everyone that we're gonna be talking about, every one of these views are biblical, they hold to the biblical authority, they really do, but they differ in, the view, in their understanding of how these things come down the pike. And we're only gonna to touch on it this morning, but once we get into Luke chapter 19, once we get into chapter 21, as we work our way through this gospel, 
we're even gonna come more face-to-face with some of these statements. But today, we'll lay a little bit of a foundation interpretively so you can at least understand. Now, if some of you are going, wow, that's a little bit too much for me. I'm just trying to figure out whether I believe in God or not. Well, you're still in the right place. But these things will help you understand views about Jesus coming back. So, one thing that will always hold true, Jesus is coming back. Our second worship song this morning, there will be a day, there will be a day. My whole life is based on there will be a day. If I didn't think Jesus was gonna come back in a literal, physical way and set all things right, again, I would not be standing here today. There is no way, but because I believe that, everything changes necessarily in your life because, well, we wanna be prepared. We want to understand that he's coming back and how then shall we live if we actually believe that. I know there are millions of people across the world that go and they, they attend religious services or varying things and, and honestly, and I meet with them all the time, they really don't even believe. Some don't even believe in God. Some don't believe in a literal resurrection of Jesus. I don't even know what would draw you unless you just are so void of public interaction that you need to come somewhere where at least you can kind of, you know, have a few friends. I don't know how that works. Does it make any sense to me? And I guarantee it wouldn't have made any sense to Jesus. Luke chapter 17, verse 20. We're just gonna read the first two verses and then we're gonna make our way through this morning. Now, having been questioned as Jesus by the Pharisees, again, who were the Pharisees, they were the religious Jews of Jesus' day, holding to a particular sect of Judaism that was very punctilious about the law, they were the holier-than-thou crowd. They really were. And they felt they held the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and they were questioning Jesus as to when, number one, when, when the kingdom of God was coming. And he answered them and said, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Now, they were looking, they didn't even, they couldn't comprehend what he was talking about. They were looking, again, for some messianic figure because if you read the Bible, you're gonna see a messianic figure emerge in the line of David that will triumph over the enemies and set up a forever kingdom. We read it every year at Christmas time. There's gonna be this forever king that's gonna come and he's gonna just dominate and he's gonna rule and and there's gonna be a scepter in his hand and, and he's just gonna set all things right. And so they were naturally asking him, when is this kingdom going to emerge? And then Jesus, answers with this, well, it doesn't come with signs to be observed. And you have to imagine that they just went, (laughs) that's ridiculous. I mean, who could imagine that to be the case? And then he says, and I'm sorry, but I'm not wild about the NIV here. It says the kingdom of God is in you because that's really, if you break that down, and I'm again, I'm not a Greek scholar, but if you really look at that, it really is better in your vicinity, in your midst, He clearly wasn't saying the kingdom of heaven was in everybody's heart or inside of the, certainly not the way in which we would view that today when we talk about the Holy Spirit indwelling people. He's not talking about that the kingdom already indwells everyone. He is more talking that the kingdom of heaven is coming and it's in your midst. And you'll remember John 
the Baptist became, came preaching, the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, well, for our purposes, synonymous, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is here, it is already in your midst. And again, Church at the Red Door, if you're an attender, a regular attender, we understand that the kingdom of God is in fact the rule and the reign of Jesus first in his first coming inside of us. It does a heart transformation in us. And I am living in the kingdom, so to speak, when I live under the rule and the reign of God. When I abide in his word, when I follow him, I'm living in the kingdom. In other words, it's already available, it's in your midst, but it's not necessarily observable, certainly not in a way that the Pharisees would have assumed where there would be military conflict and everything else that comes along with it. Now, we have to make a distinction between two things. There is the kingdom of heaven and there is also the day of the Lord. Those things are different. The day of the Lord clearly is the coming back of Jesus and it's talked about in Joel, it's talking about varying days, but even within the context of the day of the Lord, there's the long day of the Lord and the short day of the Lord. What I want you to, well, I don't want you to try to maybe get all of this, but I want you to understand that there are nuances in some of this language that are hard to understand. Hard to understand, as was the case when Jesus came the first time. Most of this revolves around two necessary comings of the Messiah. One first is the suffering servant who will inaugurate the rule and the reign of God, and the second in the line of David who will come as a conquering king, where every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus is Lord. The first coming has already happened. The first coming of the kingdom of God is available to you today if you don't live within the kingdom of heaven. It is available to you through the blood of Jesus. The second kingdom will come and it will come with signs to be observed. Now what's complex is already in the very early stages of the church during the time, uh, even prior to Luke's writing, there were already rumors that somehow, well, the day of the Lord had already come. I'm gonna take you to 2 Thessalonians 2, verses one and two. Listen to what the apostle Paul tells the church at Thessalonica. Every, evidently some things, some rumors had already began to emerge that suggested that the day of the Lord had already come. Well, obviously, and maybe they mixed that with Jesus and the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, and maybe this was all there was. Maybe it was just Jesus living in our hearts, and somehow that will help you in your life, and, but there's never gonna be this dominant coming back of, of Jesus. I, I don't, we, we have to read a little bit between the lines, but listen to what Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica. He says, now we request, we request you brothers with regard to the coming, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. Now that's different than the kingdom ruling in your hearts, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if it was from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Evidently, there was this stuff circulating in Thessalonica, like somehow it's already happened, we just kind of missed it. 
I assure you, with all the understanding the totality of the story, I assure you, you will not miss the second coming of Jesus. You won't miss it. Well, that happened in Nebraska some eight months ago. You missed that? I mean, you know. Now, there's going to be, there will be letters and cults and derivatives of all kinds of things that will in some way suggest, Jesus even said that, Jesus predicted that, that, oh, this is, this is the way it's going to happen, this has already happened. Already something was circulating, they were very confused. In Peter's second letter, uh, there was the other side of that, too. There were some that said, well, he's never coming back. He's never going to come back. Listen to what? Peter says in his second letter, chapter three, verse three and four, know this first of all, that in the last days, last days, we're already in the last days, by the way, the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, well, where is the promise of his coming? Give me a break. Yeah, you don't really believe in this, do you? Church at the Red Door, I mean, some of you are very educated people. You cannot truly imagine that some guy is going to come back out of the sky. I mean, this is fairy tale stuff. You can't really believe this. Mock, 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 mock. For ever since the fathers have fallen asleep, all continues just as it was from the very beginning of creation. Now, that's a ridiculous statement in light of all the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, the prophets saw it with such accuracy, it is mind-boggling. And as many of you know, this has been my intellectual anchor for years. Not just my experience, that's powerful. But to know the, exact, the exacting manner in which Jesus fulfilled every single thing that was written about his first coming, and he did it over and over and over in type and shadow and tribe and when and how it would happen and how I, all these things were so staggering to me when I first understood that they were written well in advance. Why in the world would I question all the prophecies that deal with his second coming? Well, you would question that if you really didn't put all the pieces together that you were biblically illiterate, and we live in a world of biblical illiteracy. We really do. People have thoughts, they read little segments of the, of the Bible, they, they, you know, they, well, there's the Gideon Bible every time I stay at a Motel 6, you know, and I'll poke it out and open it up, and it says, stone the adulteress, and I'll close it back up and say, okay, I got it all figured out. We have a lot of that in our day to day. But I think if you, if you, like we talked about last week, if you will hang in there and you will read this for all it's worth, you will be, you will be overwhelmed with your belief in the second literal physical coming of Jesus and the establishment of his forever kingdom. And you have good reason to do that. And it's not being intellectually dishonest and it's not believing in Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny or anything else. It's the very centerpiece of all human history. As a follower of Jesus, I believe that with all of my heart. Some of you may remember earlier insights that we got in Luke chapter 11, verse 20. 
Jesus made an interesting comment. He said, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Again, not only is the kingdom of heaven a representation of the rule and the reign of God in our hearts, it is actually the invasion of a, an ability to overcome the demonic principalities and spiritual forces that keep people in chains. So that the kingdom of God, though the signs may not have been obvious to everyone, certainly they weren't to the Romans and many of the religious Jews of his day, and there were people all over the, all over the Mediterranean that really had no, no real word. This was just kind of an outcropping of some, again, some messianic figure making bold claims about himself. And yet Jesus said, if by the finger of God I cast out the demonic, then the kingdom of God. So uh, the kingdom of heaven ultimately is a place where Satan has no rule, has no authority. Does he have authority in your life today? Does he have, are there strongholds in your life that the very manifestation of the kingdom of God could turn your life around? Are there addictions in your life? Are there attitudes and reactions to things that are, you can just feel in your gut come from the very pit of hell? You can be released from those things today. You don't have to wait for the physical return of Jesus for those things to occur. In that way, there is what scholars call an already but a not yet. George Eldon Ladd was infamous for this, or famous, I should say, certainly in my circles for making this kind of a statement. First, at least I had heard of it. Whether he was quoting somebody, I don't know. But there's an already aspect to the kingdom of God, but there's clearly a not yet if you're thinking of the kingdom of God merged with the day of the Lord, which is a more full picture of what the kingdom of God actually is. So the Pharisees functionally were asking when, and Jesus didn't give them what they were looking for. They were really asking, not understanding that there would need to be the necessity of two comings of the Messiah, and even more staggering in their own minds that these two comings would be uh, the suffering servant and the king would actually be merged into one person. If you go back, and I spoke about this this week to a group in the evening, if you go back and you see this river flowing, you'll see the Davidic kingly forever kingdom kind of guy that's coming and they say, oh, that's overwhelming. That's what the Pharisees were asking, really. When is that gonna come? What they didn't see, although they saw it possibly in another person, was the suffering servant stream that would work its way down, the river that would work its way down through the prophecy of all the Old Testament, that Isaiah 52 and 53, that someone, someone would be beaten beyond recognition, that would be pierced through for our transgressions, and that somehow all of our iniquity would be placed upon him uh, to whom the stroke was due was us, and yet it fell on him like a lamb led to slaughter. And then somehow you get to Zechariah 6, for instance, or excuse me, 9, and Jesus is entering as king, and we call that Palm Sunday, but what's strange about that is that he's entering on a donkey. King, forever kings don't enter on a donkey, do they? I think it was Zachariah's picture of that there would be a suffering servant and a king combined into one. Now they didn't see that, and if you don't understand that, you will not understand the Bible. You cannot. 
If you just think that Jesus came as conquering king, therefore it can't be Jesus because he didn't conquer. And last I checked, there's still a lot of, a lot of turmoil in the Middle East right there in what we would call Israel. That doesn't seem like a forever kingdom yet, certainly not one that's overwhelming where all dominion, power, and authority have been given to the king of kings, the king of Israel. Therefore, Jesus cannot be who he claimed to be. Many believe that today, unless you recognize that this tributary, this stream working down of the suffering servant had to happen first to inaugurate in his own blood the kingdom of God. Once you get that, then it all makes sense. It all flows and it becomes one crucial truth. Jesus was both suffering servant and he will come back to set up a forever kingdom where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Some out of sheer terror, some out of utter joy. My prayer is that everyone who hears my voice will be on the side of utter joy, that you would have reconciled your life to his through his blood and you will believe into Jesus and then you will stand waiting for his com coming back, his coming back. Now, let's go on to verse 22 of Luke 17. Everybody hanging in there? Do we need to take a seventh inning stretch here or what? I mean, this is a little complex, but you're gonna get some of it. Some of it, you'll just have to keep coming back and kind of just keep eating it and keep eating it. And eventually it'll, it'll start to make sense. Verse 22, and he said to his disciples, the days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you won't see it. Now all of a sudden we're, is this just the disciples? Is this happening in their lifetime? Is this for us to read now? Uh, it gets very complicated. They will say to you, look there, look here, do not go away and don't run after them. For just like the lightning, when it flashes out of one part of the sky, shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in his day. Now that feels like the end when he comes back. The suddenness of lightning, the overwhelming nature where everybody can see it. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Now. Again, we have sticking points, and I'll explain this a little bit to you in a minute. We have sticking points. This generation, meaning a generation that might be thousands of years in the future, or this generation, the very generation that I'm talking to. It gets complicated, and that's where theologians begin to part ways. It's challenging. Verse 26 says, and just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will also be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were pickleballing, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage until that day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed everybody. It was just, in other words, it was normal life. And then you hear, the rain started coming on the you know, skylights. Guess they didn't have skylights back then, but you get the point. <laughs> what happened? It was just normal. Did we got? I got married a couple of days ago. There's no way that the world is going to be destroyed. I got. I just got married. I don't have time for the world to be destroyed. I mean that. 
And Jesus is saying, it's going to be like that. It's going to be like that. Flood came and destroyed them all, and then verse 28, and it was, it was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planning, they were building, but on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained, but this time not H2O. This time brimstone, fire from heaven and destroyed all of them, and it will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. Revealed. Hmm, interesting. You know what apocalypse means? It comes from a, a word apocalypto that just means the revealing. That's what apocalypse means, is a revealing. Really, it's at its core. Huh. It will be just in this, he says in verse 31, on that day the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house must not go down and take them out and likewise the one who is in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife, whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it and whoever loses his life, well, he will preserve it. I tell you on that night there will be two in one bed, one will be taken and the other be left. Now already some of you, especially in the Western time that we live, live because there's something called Left Behind series, written by Tim LaHaye and those, and probably the most well outlined, and I'm gonna explain what view that is. It's not necessarily as much of a, an historical view as some of the other views, but immediately, and we'll call this the future view, the futures, you're a futurist, you would read the book of Revelation, all of this is happening in the future. Immediately, you would be saying, somebody's taken, somebody's left behind, that's the rapture, and then their rapture, but it doesn't say that here, but, but in your mind, you may not be cognizant of the fact that you already have constructs that are working in your mind on how you view the, these kinds of things, and that's natural, and that's okay. But that's not really the question that's being asked here or the question that's being answered. And I'm gonna explain what that means. There'll be two women, one grinding the place, and they'll be taken, the other left. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken, and the other will be left. And answering, they said to him, here it is, where, Lord? Where what? Where are they going to be taken? Where? where they? One's left and one's taken. Where are they going to be taken? Now the big question is, who's taken? The righteous or the unrighteous? He doesn't say. You probably never thought about that. Do you get, is it the righteous or, and then he gives this, even if it's not strange enough, he, he gives this an answer and they said where, and he said where the body is, which really can be translated carcass, it's dead body, there also the vultures will be gathered. The problem is that word vultures is actually, it could be vultures or it could be eagles. That's very different. Vultures eat on dead carcasses, but eagles don't eat. That's why the NASB, well, they make it, they make, they come on a position, they say it must be vultures because it's judgment and there's a apocalyptic day and some people, well, you know, and then others say, no, it's the body of Jesus. Uh, it gets complicated. Again, don't say, well, the, that's right. I don't like studying the Bible because nobody can understand it. No, there are things that we clearly understand 
And there's some things that we have to approach with humility. We have to say, okay, Lord, these are the things I absolutely know, and these are some things that when they come to pass, we'll know them in light of. And this is exactly what happened with the Old Testament in Jesus' first coming. Nobody saw it. Two persons, nobody saw a king coming and a suffering servant, not in the same person. Who saw that? And yet, well, the well, Bible's very clear, but it wasn't clear. It wasn't clear. But there's some things that they could know. And that's what they were held ac accountable for, the things that they absolutely could know. It wasn't until the Christ event and this extraordinary theologian named Saul who would become Paul, who would go away for 11 years and with some revelation could really understand, oh my gosh, it was always right there for us to see, but it took the Christ event for it to be solidified and understood in a full and complete way. Are you following me? My, my idea when I come to eschatological passages, eschatological passages, is to say, I've got to approach this with some humility. I know what Jesus said. I know what the interpretive views are. And then somehow, when these things begin to occur, I think I'll understand it better, and I can interpret it through the lens of some historical events that occur. That's kind of how I approach these things. I never hold it so adamantly, like if you don't believe, there are men. I don't think women would do this. I think you have to be as slow as men are slow to really be, make some of these statements men have said and God-fearing, loving men that if you don't take a, for instance, premillennial view, then you're really, these things are akin to the things of salvation. I mean, I've read some of these guys before and I just go, I rub my eyes and I go, I, don't, I think that's a real lack of humility here. Again, there are strengths and there are weaknesses in every interpretive view. Do you see that? And again, we'll see more of this when we get to Luke chapter 19 and 21. Um, I want you to think about this. What are the basic views when we read the book of Revelation as an example? The book of Revelation, anybody got that figured out? I'm gonna go ahead and pass the microphone over to you. You can come up and start talking now. I mean, I, I have, trust me, I have ideas. I have pretty strong views, quite frankly, about this, but I'm always cautious not to superimpose uh, my particular views because I'm not gonna argue if I'm wrong, okay? And I, if, I, if things began to unfold in a way and, and, I see, and I didn't quite see it happening that way, then I'm not gonna sit there and argue. I'm just gonna go, okay, now I understand more clearly. It's my task to understand what is spoken prophetically by Jesus about his second coming and by some of the other apostles. It's my task to understand and hold these things, waiting to see how they might come down the pike. I hope you understand that. Let me give you one example. The reestablishment of the nation of Israel. I can tell you right now, I would have read that more allegorically until the fact that Israel became a nation again. So I ha how can I not interpret in some way, literally 700 different prophecies saying that he was gonna regather Israel, he was gonna regather Israel, Isaiah 11, 11, a second time, not just after the Babylonian captivity, a second time. They, May 15th, some say 14th, 15th, Ben-Gurion signs into existence the modern state of Israel, which has affected all of our lives. 
And I, and I said, okay, I didn't see that coming. But now in light of these scriptures, it's literal. It's not just kind of a spiritual awakening that will happen. I mean, Jewish men and women, well, and as many of you know, over half the uh, Jewish folks in the world live in Israel today. That's just happened within the last couple of years, close to eight million, a little over seven live actually in the modern state. And then you can go back and see these prophecies. I'm gonna gather from the, from the north and the south and the east and the west and almost every time it's been through some kind of bizarre level of persecution and atrocity. Most of the time they feel, believe it or not, they feel more safe there. America's an exception. I don't know if, how long that will last. There's a lot of anti-Semitism raging in our day. I, I don't know. But I'm saying those, that's one example of where I'm saying, okay, I'm willing to redirect some things that I might used to have thought or held to. There are four basic principles, four basic interpretive views when you look at future things. One is called, this guy's called the preterist. The preterist is saying a lot of this stuff was predicted about the fall of Rome and the persecution of the church and most of the things you read in the book of Revelation have already happened in the past. These are the preterists. There, there's another view called the historicists. The historicists believe that Revelation is just kind of a summation of the history of the church over periods of time. The letters to the churches, etc., in some ways can represent a little bit the problems, probably the least held position. A little bit of the problem with that is who's to say what reflects what. It's kind of an unknown, even when it occurs, you can say, well, this guy thinks it's that, and that, that guy thinks it's that, and this. But the historicist sees that these things are happening success, successively. Then there's probably the most dominant view, at least in the West, in large part due to the Left Behind series and the late great planet Earth by Hal Lindsey and a lot of these other things. This view is really more a product of R.C. Darby and some of this, it's kind of a, a premillennial view that we'll talk about in just a second. But this is the futurist view. This is a view that when we read the book of Revelation, it's all happening sometime in the future. And some people say, of course it's happening in the future. But wait a minute, wait a minute. It's a little bit more complex than that. And the last view would be the spiritual view. That doesn't mean it's more spiritual than the others. But this view would be that the book of Revelation is very, very symbolic. So it's not gonna be a literal 12,000 male virgins from 12 different tribes comprising a literal 144,000 that will somehow recognize that they followed the wrong guy in a rebuilt temple halfway through a tribulatory period and then they will flee to Basra and somehow, but in between they will preach the gospel to the world and, and all that kind of thing. That's all in the future. That's all in the future. It's not now. The futurist would say that. The spiritual would say, no, wait a minute. Wait a minute. These are all symbolic. These represent something. There's reference in the Bible. And so, and then a guy named William Hendrickson, as an example, would be someone really excellent at that, uh, parallel progressivism. So it's this picture of things are kind of happening over time. In other words, there's horses riding all the time in different places of the world, and there's all kinds of things, and it's happening, and it's repeated cyclically over and over and over until ultimately, finally, all the judgments are poured out and that, that Jesus comes back. But in all of these views, and this is the important position, in all of these views, 
Jesus literally comes back in a physical body. So you say, what does this really have to do with us? Why are we getting so deeply into this? It's because I have to preach through these things and because we're not skipping over this stuff. And so you need to understand a little bit, well, before I, immediately you may envision that the taken are the righteous, but what if the taken are those that are taken away for judgment? Or what, are you following me? I'm just saying, these are complex issues. And then lastly, and allow me to read Steve Gregg from the Revelation 4 Views, a very popular commentary that I remember reading years ago, just trying to understand all these different views. He says, it may surprise many to learn, because now we're gonna talk about this millennial views. This all comes out of Revelation 20. You've heard about it, right? A thousand year rule and reign of Christ. Is that a literal thousand years? Does Jesus come back and then reign on the earth for a thousand years where all the people that were died in Christ come back and they're immortals and they live among the mortal for a thousand years? And then somehow at the end of that thousand years, there's a big uh, Armageddon again. I guess somebody in Kansas says, hey, we can take them, you know, after all of them ruling and reigning. And then there's another battle and, and some of you, but that's, that's a, a, again, a future view, but it's also a premillennial view. And uh, this millennialism is so complicated. It's so complicated. It may surprise you, he says, many to learn that the greatest issue of controversy related to the book of Revelation, especially, from the earliest times to the present, has not been over the identity of the two witnesses, the meaning of the number 666, right? Or the timing of the rapture in relation to the tribulation already in the second century. The watershed issue is the interpretation of the apocalypse that was defined in terms of one's understanding of the meaning of a thousand years in Revelation 20. It's no exaggeration to call this the most controversial chapter in the entire Bible. Is it a literal thousand years? But then the Bible says the Lord owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Is this a symbolic number for Jewish men and women? Is it just a thousand hills? Did somebody go out and go, okay, one, two, three, four hills? No, it's 2006, he, he, 1006. He only owns the cattle on a thousand hills. No, it's just a, it's kind of an, innumer, it's, it's, it's a number that's kind of not able to be counted. Is that what he's talking about? Or is it a little thousand years? Jesus coming back, rapture the church, and then he comes back with the church after the tribulation. And then it, even then you've got pre-tribulation rapture, mid-tribulation rapture, post-tribulation rapture. And if you're not understanding this, don't worry. <laughs> Jesus is coming back in great power and in great glory. That informs you enough to get your act right before he comes back. That's what I want you to walk away with. I'm not saying these things are not important. Many would say, well, why did he even say them at all if they weren't meant to be understood? Some people feel so strongly that their view is without flaw that they can become pretty adamant to the point of defending and almost calling people who don't hold their view people who don't value the word. I want you to walk out of here and understand that there are men and women who deeply value the word. 
that they hold to it, that they eat his flesh and drink his blood daily. And we know what that means at church at the Red Door, right? They, they eat the daily bread and they love him and they follow him and they're filled with the Spirit of God and they disagree about these issues. That's what I want you to get. That's what I want you to get. Why are these things so challenging? We're gonna close with these last few ideas. Just a couple more ideas here. Uh, James, some believe the half-brother of Jesus, wrote this, and I happen to be in that camp. James chapter five, verse eight and nine. Was James super wrong about the future of Jesus coming back? Listen to what he says. You too, be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brothers, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. I thought this thing was supposed to be inspired. And James is saying, it's right at the door. It's right around the corner. Don't complain. In other words, act today, because he, he's coming back. And then others would say, and this is supposed to be inspired scripture? Was James wrong? Or was he right? Or how do you interpret the coming of Jesus in this context? Sometimes the Holy Spirit is called the spirit of Jesus. Was that the coming of Jesus in the hearts of men and women? And don't complain. But this is clearly after Pentecost. Is it the transfiguration? Is it, what, what's going on here? How do we reconcile this? Matthew 16, verse 28. Well, here's the challenge. Listen to what Jesus said. Verse 28 of Matthew 16 says, truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Peter, James, and John, some of these guys, are any of them? Is, do you know of any sect of religion that claims that they've been living the last 2,000 years without dying? And yet Jesus hasn't come back, or has he come back already? Like the Thessalonians believe, are you following me? I, I say this because it's enigmatic. It's, it's hard to understand. And again, someone's like, no, this is exactly what that means. There are strengths and weaknesses to these arguments. That's my point. Matthew 10, listen to what Jesus said, verse 23. Whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. What does he mean by the Son of Man coming? They clearly finish these local cities. Well, that's talking about the global cities. That's just talking about all the, and clearly that was way into the future. But sometimes you can see the Son of Man coming and it clearly has to be in the context of that generation. And other times you see a Son of Man coming where it's clearly the Son of Man, the day of the Lord is coming and every knee will bow and every tongue confess. Matthew 24, verse 30. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Now that, to me, clearly, at least in my view, is the coming back of Jesus in a literal King David kind of way. I'm with you on that, but he still calls it the coming of the Son of Man, the coming of Jesus. 
Why did I come here to church at the red door today? I mean, this is, I came in, I'm a lot more confused now than when I came in. Why, why are you taking us down this road? Because I want us to be a church that honors all those forefathers and men and women who've loved Jesus and just disagree about some of the challenging statements of Jesus' return. Last thing, what does this expression, this generation, mean? I alluded to it. Well, the preterist group might say, yeah, this generation, when Jesus in verse 34 says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place, meant that generation because this stuff already happened. Futurists would say, no, the generation is the last generation before Jesus comes back, and they are serious about this. We're going to read Luke 17, 37 again. Remember, I just said, they asked the question, where, Lord? And Jesus said, where the body is, the carcass is, there also will be these vultures or eagles. Now, there are two camps on this. What does that mean? Is it eagles or is it vultures? Well, some might say, and I, I know this may seem stretched to you, but you're, people are trying to use the body. One of the hermeneutic principles that I have always used. I want to allow the Bible to interpret itself. In other words, if it's going down a particular construct with eagle or vulture or bread or manna or something, I'm looking for some precedent. It's a little bit like our legal system. You're looking for some precedent. You don't just draw new meanings. So when Jesus is talking about he's the shepherd and there's the sheep and they're, I, Jeremiah 23, Ezekiel, they talk about these shepherds. And so he's not just drawing this language out of nowhere. And that helps you interpret some of the statements of Jesus. Well, is this taking it too far? Listen to what Job 39 says, all right? So what we're trying to determine, who is it that's taken? Jesus says, when I come back, he said, one's gonna be taken, one's gonna be left. Is one gonna be taken away to judgment or, or is it the righteous that's taken away and the, and the unrighteous are left? Well, he doesn't tell us that. So some would interpret Job 39, listen, is, listen, is it at your command that the eagle, the, now they're gonna interpret these as eagles. So, right? So he says that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high or on the cliff he dwells and lodges upon the rocky crag, an inaccessible place. From there he spies out food, his eyes see it from afar, his young ones also suck up blood. Sorry, it's just what it says. And where the slain are, there he is. So it's saying eagles are coming in and sucking up blood from a dead carcass. Some would say that's Job seeing the righteous as eagles coming in and living off the atoning blood of the death of Jesus. Some say, I've never heard that before. I know, that's the point. That's why I'm here, to share things you've never heard before. So we know in John 6, Jesus said, truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and suck up his blood, drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. In other words, be an eagle. And that's what that means. But if the meaning is vultures, well, that could just be carnage, you know? That's just a picture of devastation. So the one taken is a way for judgment. And they're there they're gonna lose their lives and the vultures are gonna come in and it's gonna be, 
You see, my point is not to distract you, but to say these are complex issues and people who take the word seriously disagree. And we're gonna see that all the way through. And I'm, again, I'm laying a foundation here that when we, when we get to some of these even more complex passages, if you can imagine, I'll try to do it more in a simple way, but I wanted to give you some blocking and tackling. Do you immediately think of the future? Do you immediately think only of the past? Do you see this all symbolically? Or do you see this as kind of successively happening in history? Do you believe there's gonna be a literal 1,000 years? Or are you all millennial? Many of you Presbyterians or whatever, many, many are all millennial. Uh, in your background, we, and that's why I love Church at the Red Door. We have so many diverse backgrounds. And you may not even know that you're all millennial, but you kind of see the thousand years as from the moment Satan was bound on the cross and that the, the, Jesus is kind of reigning and, and, and we don't know how many number. It's a thousand, it's a lot, that's all we know. Do you, do you see that? So whether you're aware of it or not, you would read something like that and immediately go, well, I saw that movie, you know, Left Behind, or I saw this, or my pastor said this years ago and I understand it like this. I'm just saying, let's be honorable, let's be charitable one another and say this is a little challenging. But here's what we can know. Are you ready for God to set all things right? Do you believe that Jesus was crucified and resurrected? It's historically accountable. Are you in fellowship with Jesus today? I'm, I'm asking you the question. How do you apply a message like this about eagles sucking up blood? I mean, what kind of a message can you pull out of that? Are you in fellowship with Jesus? He said it. Are you eating my flesh? Are you drinking my... Have you allowed the atoning work of Jesus on the cross to make you righteous? And then are you choosing to follow him by abiding in his word, eating his flesh, if you will? And none of these interpretive views ever, ever negate the fact that Jesus is literally coming back and it will be suddenly, as in the days of Noah and Lot, suddenly. It was just seen normal. It's not like 8,000 things happened and it got more and more and more dire and then all of a sudden it's just obvious that Jesus is coming back. It's gonna be, people are gonna, stock market's gonna be gone, people are gonna be getting married, people are thinking about buying a piece of land, They're all kinds of, just normal life, and then suddenly he's gonna come back. Are you ready for that? Well, you can start your preparation today. We're closing with this, Hebrews 3, this is Paul, his letter to the Jewish believers, listen to what he says. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, verse seven, Today, if you hear his voice, if somewhere deep down, maybe you're watching online or television, somewhere deep down, you're like, I don't know, I just somehow believe this. If that's right, that all these prophecies predicted his first coming and he did suffer like Isaiah saw and all these things, it's like, wow, I never even thought of that. I wonder if all the prophecies written about his second coming as a conquering king will come to pass. Maybe you're hearing that today for the first time in your spirit. He simply says, don't harden your heart. As when they provoked me as in the day of the wilderness where your fathers tried me by testing me. Don't test God. I'm asking you this morning, do not test God. Not another day. Today might just be a normal day. I'm gonna go out and hit a few balls. I'm gonna go to dinner. I'm gonna whatever. We don't know. 
Jesus could come back. Therefore, I was angry with them, and they always go astray in their heart. As I swore in my wrath, they're not going to enter my rest. Take care, brothers, and let there not be one evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. You say, are you trying to scare us? No. But the Bible is trying to grab us and get our attention, which is really hard to do in the 21st century. Encourage one another day after today, as long as it's still called today. I'm also encouraging some of you because some of you are suffering. Some of you this week, I, we've, I lost a precious friend just this week. And his widow, I was on the phone with a number of times and will continue to be. And there's suffering that goes on here. I want to encourage you. There will be a day. In Christ, there will be a day of joy. Outside of Christ, don't say these things, Jeff. They're just, we don't say these in the 21st century. Jesus did. Outside of Christ, eternal separation from the creator of your soul. Why? You don't have to live there. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Encourage one another. I'm encouraging you this morning. Hang in there. If you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. <clears throat> That's the story. The story is Jesus is coming back. The, complex, the complexities, the enigmatic nature of his return yeah, they exist. I'm not going to beat around the bush. We're not a church that's just going to say, well, this is the way it is. Some of the things, we will say this is the way it is, but some of the things that are a little bit, well, I think we have to approach them with great humility. So I choose to do that as your pastor and honor other churches here that believe in the literal death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and the literal return of Jesus. Uh, that's, I'll die on that hill. But not on whether it's a literal or a, figurative thousand years mm -mm. not whether or not you're going to have a literal 666 tattooed to your head no i'm not going to do that but he's coming back so we're going to close with this and i'll set it up it's a little <laughs> it's a little cheesy in parts but i told pete pete goes we had another one and i, I it's hard to find these things but it's a little cheesy but i i some people really are impacted by visuals and they take this thing out of a silly movie and some clips and things. But I hope you're impacted. I just walk away with, Jesus is going to come back. The clouds are going to be ripped apart, according to Revelation, like claps of thunder. It'll be like light. It'll be sudden. It'll be so overwhelming. People aren't going to go, I'm not into that today. I'm playing cards tonight, whatever. It'll be so overwhelming that every knee will bow and every tongue confess. Your pastor loves you, and uh, we love you, and so just think about his return.